This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. So Jesse came over and was looking for help with why this test was failing. It was failing for her, and it was failing if Joshua, also in Denver, ran it. But Bernard in Portland, it would pass for him. And it was, a time, it was for some times unrelated code. And it turned out to be a bunch of different bugs. But the first one was that even though the, the code in the test looked like it was written in a time zone independent way, the local time zone did still affect it. Okay. Uh, so the first thing was just make sure the entire test ran in the use time zone block. And then the second part was that the, the there was a SQL query that would select this column at time zone, but it was passing the offset of the time zone as opposed to the uh, name of the time zone, so it would not take into account daylight savings. And um, the time was being inserted in daylight savings but being taken out without daylight savings because the offset of the time zone does not... Uh, if you do time.zone.offset, the offset of the time zone does not include daylight savings, but a date might have a different offset, even if it uses that time zone. Anyway, so they passed that, but then that didn't actually change anything. And it turns out the third problem was that uh, Postgres compiled and installed via Homebrew uses its own time zone database as opposed to the system one. And the system time zone database on Mac is out of date because Egypt canceled daylight savings time. Just for this year or just like... They canceled it this year, and I guess it's permanent. But, like, they canceled Daylight Savings Time, and Postgres knows this, but Mac doesn't. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I, I just got a kick out of, like, the bug was that Egypt canceled Daylight Savings Time. Yeah, of course that's the bug. They're all, the like, oh, I can't stand it. I'm so glad I'm not working. I worked on a scheduling app a while ago. I'm so glad I'm not working on Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. So you want to talk about this ORM thing? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I've started working or designing, philosophizing, what have you, on an ORM for Rust. Why? Yehuda and I are interested in having a web framework for Rust. Okay. Um, and you, gotta and have a, you, gotta, you feel like you need to have an ORM for that. I feel like you need a nice way to map from a SQL query to a, a struct at the very least. Mm-hmm. And I think there are niceties that we can add on top of that. All right. I am trying to, compared to Active Record, have this be more focused on SQL in some ways. Basically, I would like to have as much... Well, okay, so getting into the philosophy of it, because um, tr- we're not trying to make Rails in Rust, and, we're not, and I'm not trying to make Active Record in Rust. A web framework for Rust should be, figure out what does a web framework look like for Rust that is the rustiest web framework. That's really not a great adjective. Right, it's just a terrible language name. <laughs> <laughs> we went over this. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. So basically you want to take advantage of types. And... Well, not just advantage of types, but like figure out what, makes, what does make Rust Rust and how does that translate into a web framework and completely ignore like Rails. Not that Rails doesn't have good ideas we can borrow, but I think if we're just trying to directly translate from uh, like Rails into Rust, we're going to lose the essence of Rust. Okay. You know, like, y- y- have, you, have you poked around with Yasod at all, or at least seen Yasod? Yes. Like, Yasod is the Haskell, Haskell web yeah. framework, right? Right, yep. And yeah, but then, but then, like you were saying, I think one of the biggest benefits of Rust is it's got a really powerful type system and a really awesome compiler. So... Rust really tries to make it impossible to do bad things, like... You cannot write incorrect code with regards to thread safety. It will not compile. At least without doing a thing that is 
well, basically without unsafe, mm-hmm. which is saying I would like to manually shoot myself in the foot. And so I'm, I'm hoping to apply the same things to an ORM. So I want to make it impossible to write an incorrect query uh, or an invalid query and have that fail to compile. Now, that, that does mean that there are certain places where I'll be restricted to using some co- sort of DSL unless I want to write an actual full SQL parser and implementation, <laughs> uh, which I don't want to do. But uh, I am going to rely heavily on some compiler plugins. So one thing I can do, for example, is given an arbitrary sing- string of SQL, I can, if I'm willing to accept that I'm, I'm going to have a database connection at compile time, which I think, I won't make it mandatory, but like for all these awesome opt-in features, uh, I'm definitely willing to take that hit. I can just take an arbitrary uh, SQL query and send it to Postgres or whatever backend and confirm, A, this is valid SQL. And I can also get back the number of columns that are, or the number of fields that are going to be returned, the names of those fields and the types of those fields. How do you take an arbitrary SQL, like... In a web application, there are very few complete SQL statements that you'll find somewhere. Correct. And so that's why what I'm going to be doing here is separating the query into two parts. So basically, the um, I'm referring to the first part of it as the query source. And that's the combination of the select clause, the from clause, and the join clause. Yep. And those three tend to be much more static, or at the very least dynamically composing static parts. Usually, uh, yeah compared to the where clause, having clause, limit, offset, et cetera, et cetera, which are all very dynamic and often based on user input. And ultimately, the only parts of a query that can change the types or the, the number of fields, the names of the fields, or the types of those fields are the select clause, from clause, and join clause. All of the rest of the query cannot actually, they'll affect what rows are returned, but they can't affect the shape of, of those rows. I will buy that, yes. So if we accept that, then I don't need, so then I don't need the entire SQL query. For this type checking. I do if I want to guarantee that's valid SQL, but... Um, I mean, I guess there'd be some crazy stuff with subqueries, named subqueries and stuff like that, but you wouldn't worry about that off the bat anyway. Well, even then, that's part of the from clause. Right, but then it's defined, like, potentially you could say... Oh, like where in subquery? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And you and could I'm name not... that subquery and, and put that up in the from clause. It'd be crazy. You could do that. That is a thing I'll have to deal with eventually. Right, and but ulti- not, not in version 0.0.1. <laughs> right. No, and even in this document, like I, I'm trying to lay the groundwork for a lot of the stuff, but even in this, I'm um, basically handling select star from single table. And then when there's relevant bits, I'm like, here's how I imagine we can deal with joins in a nice way, or here's how I imagine we can deal with selects in a really nice way. And then I kind of touch on where a tiny, tiny bit, but not very much. Um, but I do have a kind of a vision of that in my head that I'll talk about. But... Um, Anyway, so the first thing is we need, so we want to have a query source, right? And ultimately, I, I see there being three sort of types or transitions involved in doing a query. There's the native SQL representation. There's the um, way you would like to represent those types once you read them. And then there's the ultimate struct that you're going to build out of that. And that intermediate part is needed just because even knowing the, the native SQL type still, ultimately, it's just going to be some bytes. And if you want to build a struct, you still need to basically interpret those bytes and potentially do some coercion on them to uh, turn them into the types that you need in order to build your struct. So that, for, for example, that would be pulling, like doing, what, doing some typecasting out of the data, outside of the database, right? So like the database supports one type of data and your model supports this other similar type but not exactly the same type? Is that what you're talking about? Right. So for example, uh, well, 
Yes and no. It's actually a very limited number of, of places where there would be multiple valid ways, especially if you want two-way conversion. Um, so, for example, like you could totally convert from a SQL integer to an, an I64, but you couldn't convert an I64 to a SQL integer. Or at least I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't want to say in the framework, like generically, that is an okay co- conversion. If you have an I-64 and you want to stick it in and potentially truncate some of, your, um, some of the information, you can do that, but you're going to have to be very explicit about that. Like I won't say that this is a generically an okay thing to do. But you can totally read out of it, but I'm re- um, probably only going to add, I guess there's no reason not to have things implement from SQL but not to SQL for the same type. Um, but anyway, like for integers, there's actually, it turns out, really not a ton of reason to represent them in more than one way. But some of the more complex types like binary or, well, binary actually still, there's only one real reasonable way. But dates maybe, JSON, most of them, there they're like, they're really, really is only one particular way. Uh, I guess string is the, or varcar is the biggest one because you, you would potentially want to read that as a stir or a string, maybe even a C string. Right. But I'm going to try and only for this support things that are in the in the standard library. So anyway, so the first part of it is there's the idea of a native SQL type, and I'm using a trait for that, um, just because I want it to. I I don't want you to be like doing. I guess I'm not sure if I want to say I don't want you to be doing pattern matching on the native SQL type, but it's more I want it to be an open-ended enum. So I want if you install Postgres plugin, there's going to be new types I don't know about, and I want you to be able to extend them, which. I guess actually by definition means that I lose the ability to exhaustively match on them or right. really pattern match on them at all. And that's fine. I'll, I guess implementation will show if there's a trade-off uh, with that. And then the second piece of it is then we have a trait called from SQL, which is generic over type A, which must implement native SQL type. Um, and so this is then the way, the, um, these are both marker traits. From SQL will probably have an implementation to it. So that can say stuff like, uh, I implement from SQL for uh, from uh, type serial to I32, right? And 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 in this uh, example that I've got right now, I'm just because I don't want to have tons and tons of boilerplate. The only two SQL types we talk about are serial and varcar, and the only two Rust types we talk about are I32 and string. Anyway, and then right, so then we can implement from SQL of uh, varcar for string. And then the last piece that we can do that's necessary for anything useful is a generic implementation where given, um, well, two generic implementations. So given type A, which implements native SQL type, and type B, which implements native SQL type, I can say that a tuple of A and B implements native SQL type. Okay. That seems logical. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then given that, so then given type A, which implement, uh, which Given type source of A, which implements native SQL type, <laughs> okay. and given type source of B, which implements native SQL type, and given type A, which implements from SQL for, uh, of source of A, and given okay. type B, which implements from SQL of source of B, then um, I can automatically implement from a tuple of source of A and source of B to a tuple of A and B. Okay. Right. This all sounds really pedantic, but it's important to be able to state in the type system that if I know that varcar is native SQL type and I know that serial is a native SQL type, then a tuple of those two is a native SQL type. And then that I can t- go from that tuple to a tuple of I32 and string given that. Um, and, and it turns out the compiler can, will end up giving really, really helpful error messages as well. Like if I specifically omit the um, from SQL for 
um, an I32, mm-hmm. and then I and I write some code that is, that like assumes I can convert from a tuple of Varkar or serial in Varkar to a tuple of I32 in string. The error message won't be about the tuples. It will specifically be could not convert from serial to I32. Like it's able to see, oh, this almost matches, but this one little piece of it doesn't quite fit. So the compiler is really smart in generating good error messages for that. But it, right. it's so, just so rather than like, hey, something in this entire tuple here is wrong, it gets you right down to exactly what the problem was. Yeah. Um, anyway, and, and and this is all just sort of set up and proofs, uh, and these are all things that would be in the in the framework itself, but they're all kind of important to be able to state so that we don't have to we don't have to do weird things with arity like we would do if this were an active record thing, um, and we don't have to force it upon the user or do any weird compiler derivation to, to prove this. We can just, but, we, um, but ultimately to be able to query off of a table, we're going to want to represent it as a tuple. So uh, I'm going to treat everything that comes out of the database as a tuple and I'm going to stick it into a tuple to give to you. So that's uh, the first important thing is I want to be able to then state at the compiler level for a given SQL query what can be queried from it, like what set of primitives. And then the next thing is dealing with tables, which is going to be the simplest source of a query source. And so in my mind, there's a, in, in this document as well, there's this macro. Uh, I, I think I call it table. You state, I'm, I'm going to have a user's table. The table name is users. It has these columns. And then I'm envisioning a, an optional compiler plugin where at compile time, we just dump the schema and generate all of the calls for those macros for you. Presumably, there will be a midway also where you're able to say, I want to represent the table with this name by this name in the Rust code, but uh, I still want you to go figure like generate all of the the rest of the all of the rest of the body of this uh, macro for me. And so what what that's going to do is that's going to define the user's table struct with no information on it, but then implement the query source trait for it with the native SQL type being a tuple of all of the columns. And in, in this example, it's a uh, of of serial and varcar. So now we've got a query source set up, and we know in this, in, in this example, there is specifically only one data type that you could ever get out of it, but of course in the real world there will potentially be more than one, and that data type is a tuple of I32 in string. So you, you, if you define your user as a struct that uh, contains an I32 and a string, and again, this is a thing that you can write by hand, but I'm expecting to just derive automatically with a compiler plugin. I call this inter- this trait queryable, which I might change the name for, but it's basically a way of saying, given this intermediate, given this representation of a row, mm-hmm. and this native SQL type, and proof that that native SQL type can be converted to that row, then I can exist, and I have a build function from the row type to self. Right. That makes and sense. So, and trait, trait, just so I'm clear trait is basically an, interf- an interface is that the like a uh, java, java interface or it's a, it's a haskell type class for listeners for whom that makes sense and for <laughs> everyone else yeah kind of a java interface <laughs> with okay. more type information okay anyway so that can say like for any given query source and evidence that the query source's native sql type can be converted to an i32 in a string then user implements queryable for that query source, and here's the build function, which is just compiler-derived and taking the zeroth element of the tuple, sticking that in ID, and the first element of the tuple, and sticking that for name. And all of this is like a ton of, this is, you know, a lot of code and boilerplate and reasoning, but the important, th- the important part of this is that what I'm expecting is, like, the definition of that struct, a comment above it that says derive queryable, 
and uh, maybe a, a macro that says derive what the user's table looks like. And we never explicitly say user comes from user's table. We're just saying that, that the uh, and I'm not sure if I want to actually keep that or not. But, so, the, uh, so the nicety there is that the struct for user doesn't know anything about the table it comes from. And so uh, I want to leave it open-ended because I intend for the query source to change anytime you would change the, sele the select clause, the from clause, or the join clause. However, I'm not sure that I need to leave it open-ended because presumably anytime you change one of those three things, you also are ultimately going to be changing the data that comes out of it. I mean, obviously, but what, what do you mean by that? Because that seems very obvious. If you change like, the, you would if, no be getting a user. You would be getting some other type. Right, but you like in the Rails world, if you use select, you can get a user. You still get a user. It just has nil. Has well, has something different. And you just stated nil. why that can't be possible. What? And you just stated right. what? Can't right. Be possible. So it can't be possible. Right. And I, and I'm also going to be and one little side note that isn't necessarily explicit, but I'm just as a as a design uh, piece enforcing that you're going to use all columns. You're not going to select anything that you're not using. You're not going to select anything that you aren't using. Correct. But you just said you're gonna you're working on select star. Right. So the goal is eventually you won't do that and you'll just select what you're using. No, you or... can still do select star, but you need to be using everything then. Okay. But so if you make a system that you have to select exactly what you're using and only what you're using and not too much or too little, then you need to have a different type for every subset that you may select. Is that correct? So like if I have user and my user call, my user has like a, say, a JSON store of preferences, and maybe those preferences are huge because it's some terrible app that has a ton of preferences. And I decide I want users, but I don't care what their preferences are. I just want to drop that column. Do I now make users without preference, user without preferences as a type? Yes. And, and, and But realistically, like most of the examples that I've been able to come up with are exactly stuff like that, where that should probably be a join anyway. It's yeah. probably be a separate table. Right. And if it's a join, it's going to um it's gonna be a tuple of a user and all of their preferences that comes out of it. Right. That's true. And if but let's say we had to do let's say we had to do this um you know, we, we had to do the system where we were gonna select some small amount uh, or some something less than all of the columns on an object. Or all of the trait properties. Properties? Is that a thing in Rust? <laughs> Attributes of an object? So oh, like you have a uh, user. Uh, yeah, you can, you can any of those terms. Okay, so you are members, right? So you're going to select fewer than all of the members of an object. So you need a different or of a type, and so you need a different type. Can I share the behavior easily in Rust between those two things? Like, I still want all the same, most of the same methods available to me between those. Yes and no, and and this is actually uh, something that's actively in being discussed is is uh, efficient code reuse for for share uh, specifically when you have multiple structs or multiple parts of an enum that have um, common properties right now the best way to represent that would either be to have a struct that contains user without preferences and preferences or to um, actually and probably one case that's a little different that I will support here uh, that I probably will support is if it, I guess in this case the best thing to do would be Preferences are an option I, of yeah. whatever type, and then I just ha and then I happen to allow you to query against it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, can't you use optional option? Is that what they call it? That's their maybe. Yes, that's their maybe. So couldn't you just say, you know, I intend that sometimes I will select these and sometimes I won't, and that's how you would also handle something that is nil in the database, right? 
Right. Oh, and that's the other thing is they'll be able to statically know if the column is nullable or not. And so it will be enforced that the column is nullable. The t- like you, you can't go from a nullable VAR car to a to an I-32. You can only go from a nullable VAR car to an option of an I-32. I don't have in, in, in my current draft a way of representing that because there are no type level literals. Uh, unpack that a little bit for me. <laughs> so like a type can only uh, a generic type can only be generic over another type. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cases, this is one of them, where I'd like to have Varkar be a type that's generic over a Boolean, like that, like that must contain either true or false. Now, of course, I can represent all of this with an enum. That one is easy to work around. I think that one's easy to work around. I'm actually not even positive that that's true. But like the harder one is if I would like to be generic. So type level strings, for example, would be really useful here. Yes. <laughs> where I'd be able to, for example, encode the name of the column as part of the type. Right. Which would help for enforcing where correctness. And a lot of this is just going to require exploring what's possible with the compiler today. Let's take a moment and talk about one of our sponsors. Our sponsor this week is Media Temple. For years, Media Temple's grid service has been the web choasting of hoist. <laughs> web choasting of hoist. You do it. I, I can't. I, I... For years, Media Temple's grid service has been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. That's because a single grid account can host anything from just your portfolio site to a hundred different client projects. And the Media Temple grid is ready for anything. Hundreds of servers that work together to keep your sites online, even if you suddenly hit the front page of Reddit. And there's a special discount for Bike Shed listeners. Use the promo code BIKE25 for 25% off web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net and enter your promo code upon sign up. Thanks again to Media Temple for sponsoring the show. So I wanted to touch back. I wanted to, I made a note because I wanted to ask you about this. So... You mentioned having a database connection at compile time, which seems like a reasonable thing to want to do. Mm-hmm. What happens? So now you've got all this type safety derived from the database, which is an external dependency and which differs between environments. Yes. So what happens when I run this code that's been compiled for a system where something is non-nullable and then in the production database it's nullable? Like what? what that is undefined I- behavior. Okay. <laughs> so what's going what's rust going to do it's going to die basically on this no or? i mean the code will just run making all of these assumptions ultimately like the differences won't be that much but it, yeah if you get if you get null out of uh if you get null out of a database and i compiled it to be non-nullable then that's just going to end up being undefined behavior it'd be interesting to have some sort of way to take the schema that it was compiled against uh, run a checksum on that or something, and then compare that to the schema that it's running against at runtime. And like, yeah, but kind of the whole point of this is to avoid runtime checks, right? But this one runtime check at, at boot up of this entire thing to say like, be sure you are running on the same type of schema that I was compiled against. I, I, I guess the downside to that is also that over focuses, like you're assuming a boot, boot time is a thing. Hmm. I am. Is true for a web framework is not necessarily true for an ORM. Okay, so I so we can implement this in the. Have you named this ORM yet? No. Okay. Nothing's been named. The the entire framework that we're that that we've started to think about is basically right now just a series of gists and design documents. Okay, so unnamed ORM, uh, which will be a piece of unnamed web framework. Then there can be an unnamed web framework dash unnamed ORM. <laughs> That adds some yeah. web frameworky specific stuff to it. I mean, that's the thing, right? In a web framework world, presumably we'll have migrations of some sort. Right. Well, but I would love for for migrations to be totally 
divorced from the ORM. They're stuff. going to be, absolutely. Because yeah. they make no sense outside of the context of a... Uh... I would also be totally fine not having a DSL for them. And you just like, you write SQL. Write some SQL? Yeah, right. me too. Yeah. But uh, realistically, if, you, if in a web framework world, if you're using migrations, like just checking for unrun migrations is enough. Oh, man. <laughs> like, if you're going, if you're... But like, it's I'm not true. Saying, it's I'm, not true. I'm fine with you with saying that you going in and twink, tinkering with your database schema outside of the migrations is undefined behavior. Sorry, it's not true. I, all I can say is that on several projects that I've been on that have been long-running projects, it's not true for production Rails apps today that it is not uncommon. It's not more common. It's it's less common than not, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like in In most cases, it's okay, but if you log on to a production server and you run git status, there's a non-negligible chance that there's going to be changes to DB schema. Well, then we're just not going to have DB schema. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, like, that's because right. of a schema dumper. Right, because the schema is dumping differently than than you're dumping in production or you're dumping in development. And it's not it's not just it's sometimes it is just like, why are these columns in a weird order now? What happened? But sometimes it's like, well, this field's nullable and it's not here. What the hell happened? Or like right. there's some extra columns here that we don't have in our development schema. Like <laughs> what is happening? But I think the problem there is because like we run these migrations and then go dump the schema. And those two things are completely disjoint. And I think unifying them in some way will help. Okay. We also don't run the pending migrations check in production. Um, that seems smart if you ever want to be able to roll back. Because if you roll back, you're immediately going to have a pending migration. Well, presumably if you're rolling back your schema, you also need to roll back your code. Right. Which always trips people up because you can't just roll back the code. First, you have to roll back the schema. Then you roll back the code. <laughs> Doesn't because uh, does, if you roll back the code first, you will not have the data. You will not have the database migration to roll back. Does Heroku rollback also do that automatically? I don't know. I I've to be honest, I've never had to roll back. I always just roll forward. Right. It's like oh, I screwed this up. Let's just fix it and we move forward. I don't know. Roll, rolling back is is a rare thing. This, but the, you, you do raise a good point of that it will presumably, and actually now that I'm starting to think about this, this is actually easier to make assumptions about in a web world than it is in a non-web framework world, depending on whether or not you expect to control the database that you're running against. So maybe it will make sense. I guess, I guess, what I, I guess yeah, it makes sense to uh, have a macro that's like check schema against the version I was compiled at that you would choose to include in your code if you want to have that. How would that work? What would, well, what would the compiler do to leave a trace? Uh, well, because it's a macro. Mm -hmm. And I can just do whatever I want. I would probably stick... Write a file let, somewhere or something? Like, what are you going to no, do? I mean, it wouldn't even be a file. It would just be in the, your oh, code. Oh, right, in like, the compiled let, code. Let database fingerprint <laughs> right. equal and then generate it and then Duh. add and then generate the, and then also right after that insert the code that assert that that variable equal uh, is equal to and then generate it right at runtime. Right. And that reminds me of the other question I had. At one point you were talking about, I can't remember which one you were talking about, but you were talking about having a macro. At one point you said, like, this block of code will have a comment above it that says this, and then there will be a macro. What's the difference between this comment that you're talking about and then uh, the macro? Sorry, not a comment, a corrective, a directive. Directive, right. So uh, what is the difference between a macro and a directive? So a macro is any function, and I, I just did air quotes for, for the listeners, uh, that has a bang at the end of it in Rust. And right. There's sort of two forms of macros. There are like 
actual normal supported macros, which uh, are very limited in what they can do. Uh, they're they're fully hygienic, so just you have like that was a fancy word. <laughs> yes, hygienic. Enti- yes. Okay. <laughs> which I don't entirely understand quite what it means, but it involves cleanliness. Right. Hy- hygienic. Yes. Except hygienic. Okay. I might have just been misreading it. I can swear there's an extra I in there that, and when I've seen it used. Anyway, but the, the point being, like, ultimately, so, for example, one thing that I, I actually feel like you probably should be able to do, but just for whatever reason, it's a little limited and you can't, is, like, uh, I wanted to have a macro that takes uh, the name of a variable and a number, name of a variable and name of a second variable, and then at some point during the macro I wanted to do, like, first variable dot get underscore second variable. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually allowed. Okay. So just for that, you need a directive. No. Okay, uh, never mind. <laughs> no, but my point being, like, it's ju- it, it's literally just code generation. So you can't really do much with, like, you can't do very much with what you uh, were given, other than you know, like, this was a variable name. Um, but, like, print line is a macro, for example. Uh, and the reason it's a macro isn't because of printing, but because it, it, it calls the format macro f- for you. The format macro taking a format string and generating the code to um, actually format it. Uh, and then, of course, the compiler verifies that the debug trait is implemented or the, uh, or the uh, show trait, display trait is implemented, um, which is like show in Haskell, but mm-hmm. called display. So a directive is, is not a thing that you can in, sta- in, in stable Rust actually write your own, I think. But basically, it's um, special hints to the compiler that may end up generating some code, but um, generally are more just telling the compiler certain things. So, for example, the, the one of the uh, biggest, m- most used directives, at least in the Rust compiler that you can't actually use, is the stable directive, uh, which says that this is this code is stable and you can use it in stable Rust. And then that also includes what version it's been stable since. Uh, the opposite of that, there's also the unstable uh, directive, which says the reason it's unstable and what feature it's behind so that if you want to be able to access it, you have to be on unstable Rust and then put a crate-level compiler directive that says enable this feature. Um, but then there's ones that you do use. So there's the derive, uh, there's the derive one, which just set, which for, there are certain traits that, like, if all, for a given struct, if all of its members implement that trait, there's just no reason that you should need to write an implementation uh, partial EQ is a big one, and EQ. Show, de- er, display, debug, sync, send, copy, clone. Uh, all, of the, all of those things where it's ultimately just going to be calling it on all of the members and joining them in some way. And so um, for a known set of traits, uh, you can put at the, do- at the top of the declaration of the struct, derive all of these, and then it'll just generate them for you. And using a feature-gated thing, you can write a compiler plugin that lets you derive any type that you want. So that's what, that's what a directive is. Now, m- macros can also be more powerful if you are willing to, right now, stick to nightly Rust. And uh, if you are on nightly Rust and go through a feature gate, you can write a arbitrary compiler plugin. And that one's a little more powerful. And I'm wanting to, as I'm, I'm really hoping that I can have this be a thing that works on stable Rust. So I'm probably going to have like a configuration option um, or fe- a, a, a create feature where it's like, and give me all this really awesome additional stuff, but that requires nightly because compiler plugins are not stable right now because they expose a lot of compiler internals. Because uh, ultimately what you do is you say, for this macro, 
instead, I'm not actually going to ever give you a macro definition, like using the Rust macro definitions. Uh, instead, I want you to call this function. And that function is going to take a uh, macro context, plugin context, macro context, I don't remember one of those two. Um, a span, which I have not spent enough time with compile plugins to tell you exactly what it is, but it's important for error reporting. Uh, and a AST. <laughs> and you return, and, and then your function is you, you, it's just an arbitrary Rust function, and then you return an AST. Right. <laughs> um, so that's where I can do all the cool stuff and just go connect to a database and do all of that. So what do you think are the problems that this solves? That like, so like you've been working with Active Record a whole bunch. What are you most excited about in doing that? Is it just like there's Greenfield, or is it like the, is the type checking something you're super excited about? Yeah, I mean, so there's a, a bunch of things. Um, so at this stage, it really only solves one problem, and it's not a problem many like I don't think people run into. But it's uh, that it's basically at compile time. I'm if so at the end of this document I show, and for example, with this setup, uh, if you do connection.query let users equals connection.query user table, and we've inferred that users is going to be a collection of user objects that compiles, if you try and put the post table in there, and assuming the post table is in some way a different shape, then it fails to compile. Um, so you can't accidentally query from your users from the post table, which of course is not a thing people are uh, exactly crying out for. Oh gosh, I hope, I wish there was a tool to prevent me from doing that. Well, but uh, The um, document also had that thing in that that talked about the way you would do a ha- load a has many association, right? So like you would get a tuple back of users and their posts. Correct. Rather than saying users, rather than getting a list of users and then in your view saying users.post.each do Correct. this thing, and then now you've got an N plus one bug. Right. And I can't prevent you from writing an N plus one bug, but yeah, with, with this framework, if you're going to write an N plus one bug, it's going to be because you wrote a loop and then you wrote a query, and not because you wrote a loop and then did this thing that implicitly executes a query. Right. Yeah. And that's like the, these fall under the kinds of things that finding n plus one errors because of that like not like sometimes it's obvious you're in a loop and you're issuing something that's quite obviously a query like you're calling where you're calling an active record scope or whatever but usually the n plus one bugs are i just access this property on this object uh how am i and maybe it's even a belongs to so it's not even quite obviously a plural thing that you're going to be looping over right it's like i didn't know that wasn't a property i did i like what how do how am i supposed to know that it falls into these this class of issues which are like things that as long-time Rails developers we're just used to and we just get. And um, we we discount the amount of time that we spend dealing with those issues, I feel right. like. And this goes in, like the project I'm on right now is actually running under Docker. And I'm having some growing pains getting used to it, but it's also like there's a whole class of problems I no longer have to think about. And, I, and if I'm being honest with myself, I think about them more often than I think, than I, than I really do. And I think that some of these problems, like N plus one, eliminating the possibility of having an N plus one, unless you do something explicitly to generate one falls under that type of like, it's not something you think that you spend a lot of time avoiding. We just talked about something like that. Oh, strings and symbols, right? You don't, right. <laughs> you don't think you spend a lot of time thinking about the two. But today I got bit by, today I spent an hour being like, why is this, why is this value nil? Like I, I'm printing out this hash and I see the hash and then I access a member of the hash and I'm like, why is it nil? What's going on? And I, what I failed to realize was that the hash was made up of, I, I looked at it and I was like, oh, it's string keys. So I accessed it like strings. But it was those symbols. Like, different access? It would, no, it was symbol 
like colon oh, and then a strings. quoted string with colon. quoted symbols. I mean, and I was yeah. like, oh, that's actually a symbol. Oh, and it was like a half an hour to 40 minutes. It took me to figure out what the hell was going on. I was going crazy. Um, but anyway, yeah. off topic of your ORM, but just another one of those like try and look into how much time you're actually spending debugging yeah. these types of issues. Stop and think of like all the times that you've had these problems that you well, just like, oh, no big deal. It's just a quick fix. And then there's going to be some cool stuff we can do as well. So like I'm, I'm sort of imagining where being primarily a macro and all of these, there's going to be an unsafe function that you can call that doesn't have compiler checked stuff. And you can even go kind of halfway probably where if you're not going to be on nightly and not going to use the compiler plugins, you can unsafely say, and this is a query source that exists and this is what shape it is. And I'm going to mark that as unsafe because the compiler can't check your work for you on that. But then once you've said, once you've promised to, um, uh, that to me, I can pro still do all of the other stuff, type checking against the data, the information that you just gave me, and then not need a database uh, connection. So, for example, the way I'm imagining where, and I'm not entirely sure how I'm gonna, how this is gonna get implemented, given that we don't have type level strings, but basically because the query source is now a compile time constant, essentially, I know that the ID column exists. If you try and do where ID something on a query source where the ID column does not exist, fail to compile. Uh, I know that it is actually let's use age here. Let's let's pretend there's an age column, right? Because that like non-equality operators don't make a ton of sense on uh, on ID. So I know that it, it's an integer. Hmm. So if you try and use the like operator on that, fails to compile. I know all types that can be say, uh, properly converted to a SQL integer, like native Rust types. Mm -hmm. So if you try and pass me a string, fails to compile, and then. I'm imagining this kind of basically being a DSL, and I will ultimately end up exhaustively knowing all operators that exist in SQL, but I feel like you're kind of going to end up doing that no matter what. But I'm imagining it kind of being where, bang, probably the maybe the query source first, maybe last, I don't know, don't care. And then like ID, skinny arrow, or age, skinny arrow, GT, 18. Yeah. Um, and ID... Just referencing the name of the column, skinny arrow, just because this is a macro, so it's a syntactic extension. I can define, I can pick whatever operator I like, and I like skinny arrow. Uh, and then GT, I'll know that's an operator, but that, what that turns into, 18, I know that's a thing that is right. or variable, right? And th that all is statically guaranteed to result in a valid query. If you're doing operations, max, min, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you statically know that you're getting back the right type. And if something changes, like you're never going to accidentally get back a string. And if you ever write code that assumes that the type is wrong. And again, this is one of those, oh, but that never happens like in my code, but it doesn't happen because you like spent trial and error debugging the problem and figured out, oh, right, I need to change my code to do this. And now the code just won't even compile. And you'll specifically get an error message. Hey, this query is going to, this query is going to return a var car. And I don't know how to turn that into a date. Right. Anyway, yeah, so that's sort of the philosophy behind where it's going right now. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, non-invasive associations. So associations do not live as members of the data that they're associated on. There are features from Active Record that I think are useful, and I do not yet know what they're going to look like other than to say that they're definitely not going to look like what they look like in Active Record. Like, like what, for example? Timestamps. Okay. Like automatic updating and update and create or whatever? Updated yep. and created at? Which, of course, I mean, the, the answer that first stands out to me is do it with the database. Yeah. But then the big question is uh, the data, like, if you're, especially if you're inserting more than one value into the database, mm -hmm. it would then take two queries. 
or do we even care if that if that field gets updated on the record itself why why would it take two queries i mean you could do returning star but wait wait, wait. oh so that you get the new so that your your records in memory get the i thought you meant updating the database for the updated no yeah no of course of course we can just do that at the database level but my question is then uh do we even do like well okay and there's a couple of issues there number one then we're going to end up I guess it's not an issue, but it is just a little funky where the column will be non-nullable in the database, but the type on the record will have to be uh, an option, which is just a little weird, but I guess that's okay. But right. I'll also... That being because you don't know what created at and updated at are until you persist it. Right. I don't know the to- this off the top of my head. You might be able to answer it for me. If I do insert into users created at values null, and created at is a non-nullable column with a default. It uses the default, right? If I've explicitly said oh, null on the query, I don't know. I would assume that it wouldn't. That it would error. It would error. Like so, I you, think so as well. Because it's not going to use a default because you passed a an actual value or so null. We might, we might just end up needing a separate struct. That would actually probably be the best option here: a separate struct to represent the thing before you insert it. That way, if you want to get the values back out of it, um, it, it becomes explicit that, that ju- that's just going to take an- another query, more or less, no matter what. But it's impossible to write code like, oh, oops, I forgot that this field doesn't get updated, and this field can represent it being there or not being there. Right. And that solves the impedance mismatch. Just because if, if, it's, if it's none and I'm doing generated stuff, I have no way of knowing like if this is optional because this is one of those fields that's going to get filled in automatically on insertion or... I guess I really need to handle that more generically, though. There's tons of cases where you'd have a default at the database level. That I'll have to spend more time. I haven't really thought much about inserts yet. I'm only thinking about querying right now. That's definitely... Right. So the, the field will be null, non-nullable with a default, is what you're saying? Correct. But, like, can I just write the code naively, have the type be an option, and say, I'm going to insert all of the fields on this thing, and so if it's an option, then I'll stick a null in there. Or do I need to do something bigger? And then also, but from a user's point of view, which is better? What if you just didn't support a nullable field at all? <laughs> Ever? Ever. You can't have any nullable fields in your database. Well, but that's what I'm saying. That doesn't solve it. It still needs to be optional on the, on the struct. That's true. Oh, but oh, I see what you mean. It's no longer an impedance mismatch because nothing can be nullable ever. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, but like, but timestamps I think are a useful feature in Active Record. Touch is just use a use a trigger. Yep. And like, I'm I'm yeah, and I'm not super concerned about caching and how that might be impacted. Like, uh, mm. maybe I should like if you're going to update something and then also serve a page that uses the parent of that thing. No, because I'd have to keep an identity map, and I don't want to keep an identity map. <laughs> I'm um, trying to keep everything explicit here. You know, if if your structs don't have any knowledge of like being associated to things you don't have to worry about any of the stuff that goes along with that like auto save yeah if you want to save thing a and then say it's basically you know the, the dangerous thing here is by saying oh and because i structured it this way i don't have to worry about it am i saying that oh cool this is just no longer a thing that needs to be worried about or am i saying i'm gonna make all of my users worry about it every time they use this library right. and I guess I'm just kind of, from from my personal experience and my experience as a maintainer of just things that tend to be confusing, tend to be too magical, or tend to be too much based off of like this seemed like it was the right thing in this one time ten years ago. 
you know, like I feel like the, the that that matrix of autosave. Right. If you haven't explicitly done autosave true, like whether or not the record gets saved, I feel like those are just the the series of this made sense in this one spot of Basecamp ten years ago, and because it seemed like the right thing then, that's stuck around forever. So like autosave is one of those things. Yeah, I I I. I I think that is very strongly, I strongly feel that is a case of by structuring this way, we don't have to worry about it, but that is not a, and now the users have to worry about it. I think this is one of these things that people would just be happier and better off and have more maintainable code if we always were explicit. If you want to save thing A and then thing B, you save thing A and then thing B and presumably do that in a transaction. Right. Yep. You lose callbacks, but I'm okay with that. That's fine too. (laughs) And then you don't end up with huge memory leaks because you have an after commit callback. And as it turns out, you actually have to keep a reference to everything that gets persisted ever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when are you going to be done building this thing? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm taking a month off. Uh, oh, I guess natural segue. Uh, well, <laughs> you're going to so, have some time to work on this thing, Sean. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I'm uh, going to be leaving ThoughtBot uh, the day after tomorrow. And I'm taking a month off before I start my new job. So I'm hoping to have a lot of time to work on this then. And this is your last show, right? You're done? <laughs> no. No, this is not going to impact the show. We'll still be weekly. I'll still be on it. I'll just be recording. I'm getting an upgrade on recording equipment. I ordered the new recording equipment today. Oh, cool. So my voice will sound even better. <laughs> but yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping to make it. I mean, it's not going to be done in a, in a month by any means. But I'm hoping to make a, a good dent in it and have sort of the really, really rough prototypical like hey handful of brave folks out there like there are so many features that this does not even have (laughs) but i guess that's also a a big thing for me is making sure everything's extensible so i actually do think getting users air quotes again because like it'll be brave people who aren't going to put it in production probably but uh really really early on i think will actually help drive the design of it because uh, does missing this feature mean you can't do it or you're reaching into the guts of something? Or does it just mean you have to write some uglier or more verbose code? Right. And hopefully it will always be the, the latter. Because Rust also makes it much harder for you to reach into internals of things. Right. It's going to be interesting to watch. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, I would ordinarily say if somebody said, I'm going to write an ORM for this, I'd be like, <laughs> good luck. But I mean, you have experience deep in the weeds of another ORM and maintaining it and writing huge swaths of new features for it. Uh, so I think that you are suited to take this on. So good luck. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I mean, like, do you feel like type safe queries would solve problems for you? Um, Probably. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I I feel like it would probably like just for the leading question, but just from the perspective of getting back an optional and not a thing I think is a string but is actually nil, right? right. Um, just from that perspective alone, then yes, uh, and also like date for date stuff probably get better. Um, Gonna have to figure out time zones. Yeah, <laughs> um. active sport time with zone. Yeah. I think I think it'll be I think it'll be good and I think it'll make it more likely that I'll be able to use something like Rust in the near term. So yeah, you know, so get it done and then I can play around with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping to get input from folks as early as possible on it. Um, I'll probably we'll probably stick this very dense uh, kind of design document up in the show notes if anyone wants to take a look. It may have changed since uh, since this was recorded because I'm kind of updating it daily as I continue to think about things, but. Uh, all right. 
Hopefully, cool. hopefully in like six months, we'll be like, hey, remember that time we were talking about that ORM and it actually took over the world? <laughs> took over the world in six months. But the show's now about Rust. Well, the show is kind of about Rust a lot lately. It has been. Yeah. <laughs> we're once all over I, the place. Once I'm back to working on Rails full time, we'll have a lot more Ruby stuff to talk about. Oh, who knows? Maybe we'll be onto something else by then. <laughs> um, okay. It's been fun working with you. You too. <laughs> I will continue to work with you on the podcast, though, so I'm not yeah. too upset about it. And I'm sure I'll be, I'm sure I'll still be interacting with you on random rail stuff regardless. <laughs> okay. Um, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 31. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next time. Peace. Drop. Mic drop. <laughs>